going to read from Joshua chapter 24. This is at the end of Joshua. It says this, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples throughout whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We started our scripture reading uh, in the book of Joshua, and you're probably wondering, I thought we were studying the book of Judges now, and, and we are, and I'll explain that uh, in just a minute, how those two things uh, tie together. But with it being Father's Day, um, this past week I had the opportunity to spend some time with my dad. We were out uh, fishing and uh, caught some things. I just happened to catch the, the largest fish that any of them had ever caught. Anyways, it's a long story, but I won't get into it. But uh, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this. It was about uh, 25 years ago uh, as I was starting college. My brother Aaron and I were uh, leaving San Diego here. We were going back to Chicago to attend Moody Bible Institute. And uh, when we did that, my dad did something uh, very unique and interesting. He began a practice that he has carried on to, to this day. When we went away to college, my dad began writing something to the family, I might have mentioned this before, called the weekly word. And what my dad would do was pretty much on a weekly basis, um, and it's changed in frequency uh, over the years, but he has taken the time to always sit down and write a letter that he calls the weekly word um, to those of us in the family. And the purpose of the weekly word is, is for him to kind of reflect upon his life and the things that the Lord has has taught him or the Lord is teaching him, and then, and then to share that with us. And so I have literally a, a binder full, think of it, for 25 years, these letters that my dad has written to, to myself and to uh, my siblings and then now to the grandkids as, as well. And I've thought a lot about those weekly words that I've been studying this week in the book of Judges. And there's a scripture in Romans, I want to show it to you, Romans 15.4, that, that also came to my mind. The scripture says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Uh, Romans 15.4 and my dad's weekly words have, have come into my mind often as I've been studying Judges. Because as you come to the book of Judges, we discover that it's one of those portions of God's word 
that fits exactly what Romans 15 says. It's something that was written and is a record for us that as we study it, as we look at it, as we consider it, we might receive today as the people of God instruction. Just as my dad would write those weekly words reflecting upon his, his life and his experience to help instruct us and to encourage us in our walk, so too we come to the book of Judges. We're to read the book of Judges through the lenses of Romans 15.4. That what we're going to find in this book is intended to give us instruction. And it's definitely one of those books that gives instruction, not necessarily from looking at Israel and what they did and wanting to follow their example, but it's one of those books that records for us the events in the life of Israel where they did not do the things that they should have, should have done. And so as we're going to study this book of Judges, I think what's going to stir within us is we're going to look at these people and we're going to say, how does this reflect on us? How do their experiences potentially mirror our own? How do we not fall into the traps? How do we not fall into some of the pitfalls that they fell into? It's going to be really easy to study this book and find instruction. What's a little bit more difficult, but it's there nonetheless, is how this book actually also offers us hope. So what I'd like you to do this morning is I'd like you to turn to the book of Judges. The book of Judges is the seventh book of the Old Testament. So you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. And as you come to this book of Judges, what you see is that it is a record of the events that took place after the Israelites were delivered out of the land of Egypt and began entering into the promised land. It's called the book of Judges because it records that time in Israel's history when there was no one who ruled them as a king. They were ruled by judges. In fact, that's why we've entitled this series Without a King. Now, the title of this series Without a King has a double meaning because not only was there not literally a earthly king over Israel in this time in their history, but you'll also see as we study this book that they were not serving God as their king. Now, real quick, for those of you that don't know the history or context of, of the Old Testament, when I, when I mention judges in the book of Judges, I don't want us to think about like Supreme Court judges, people in black robes who make rulings on different laws. Uh, judges, and you can see this in your notes, uh, judges were regional, political, military leaders. That's who they were. They weren't people who simply uh, sat and made judgments upon people's problems. Judges were these military leaders, more like tribal chieftains. In fact, in the book of Judges, uh, it gives us the history of 12 specific judges, each one of those coming from one of the tribes of, of Israel. And so when we come to this book, that's what we're, that's what we're uh, dealing with. We're going to be looking at the stories of these individuals who served as these regional military leaders over the people at a time in Israel's history when they did not have a king. Now, if you want to get a little bit more like your arms around the book, the book of Judges is broken up into three parts. Chapters 1 and 2, which we're going to look at today, are kind of the introduction to the book of Judges. It kind of sets the time and place of what's happening and everything that's going to come next. Chapters 3 through 16, they record for us those 12 judges and how they ruled and what they did in Israel at the time. And it shows this growing pattern of sin and moral depravity amongst the judges, culminating in a guy by the name of Samson. Are you familiar with him? We'll, we'll learn about him. 
And then the final chapter, 17 through 21, they ultimately, or, verse, or chapter 20, they record for us Israel's state as a nation at the very end of the time of, of the judges. So that's kind of like the, the broad setting for the book. Now, here's where things get interesting. You and I will not be able to understand what we're going to look at today unless I rewind for a brief second and show you why I had a start with the scripture reading in Joshua chapter 24. You see, the book of Judges, as I mentioned, takes place immediately following the events of the book of Joshua. Now, what took place in the book of Joshua? Well, if you remember Israel's history, they spent 400 years in slavery down in Egypt, and then God miraculously delivered them from slavery and oppression by the Egyptians, brought them out of Egypt, and he called them to take possession of the promised land, the land that at that time was known as the land of Canaan. And he said that they would take possession of it. He would be with them, but they were given specific instructions to drive out every inhabitant in the land of Canaan. They were not to dwell with anyone in the land. And the reason for this was that God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham. You see, you and I were created to be image bearers of God, to be mirrors of him in the world. That's why Adam and Eve, it says they were made in the image of God. But when sin entered the world, when our rebellion took place, we failed to live with God as our king, and we became to think of ourselves as our own rulers. And so we lived in rebellion against God. And so when God came to Abraham, he said, listen, I'm going to begin the process of the redemption of all of humanity, and I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to start with your family. And it's going to be through your family that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God established the Jewish people, the Israelites, as his people that all the other nations would look to and say, oh, that's what it looks like to live with God as your king, to submit to him, to live under him. That's why he gave them their, his laws and his statutes. And so when God said, I'm going to give you the promised land, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, I'm giving you this land so that this will be the place that the nations will look to and know that I exist, I am God, and this is how my people are to be. So when you come to the book of Joshua, Moses has died. He's the one whom God used to help lead them out of Egypt. And they come to the promised land. And as they come there, the book of Joshua records the, the work of the people of Israel going into Canaan with God being with them and beginning to conquer and take over the nations in that land. And at the very end of the book of Joshua, we hear these scriptures that were read earlier. Joshua comes to the people and he says, listen, therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods uh, that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers who served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my household, we will serve the what? The Lord. We know that verse. So he's throwing down the gauntlet. He's calling the people of Israel. He says, now is the time. I'm about to die. I, I haven't yet finished the work. There's still work to be done. There's still people in the land. We haven't conquered it. And so what are you going to do, Israel? Are you going to serve the Lord? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to complete the task that God has called you to? Will you be a light to the nations? And their answer, the way that they responded, verse 16, then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. 
For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also, Joshua, will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Beautiful, isn't it? Powerful proclamation. We will serve the Lord. Now, as we come to Judges chapter 1, this is the story of what they did. Did the Israelites faithfully keep the promise that they made? So let's look and see, starting in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Good start. Good start. He said, go into the land and conquer it. And so they inquired of the Lord, who's going to go first? Who should, who should start completing this task? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Verse 3, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into, the, into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. By the way, the book of Judges is not for the faint of heart, right? It only gets worse from here, Okay. They cut off his big thumbs and toes. Why? Well, and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and in Negev and in the lowland. As the book of Judges begins, things are looking pretty good. Israel's doing what they have been told. They inquire of the Lord. They go up into the land of Canaan, and they begin to finish the work that had started with Joshua. They begin to conquer. They begin to take over. They have this battle with Adonai Bezek, who appeared to be a very strong king, so strong that he had conquered at least 70 chieftains or rulers in that area and had demonstrated his power by cutting off their thumbs and their toes. And so they go in and they begin to conquer. Yet there's a bit of a problem from the beginning. Did you notice it? Did you see it? Did you catch it? It's in verses 2 and 3. The Lord said that Judah should go up because I've given the land into your hand. Verse 3 says, And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come with me. Now, church, I'm just going to ask a very simple question. Did God say to Judah to invite another one of the tribes to go with them to conquer the land? No. God had said, Judah, you go up and you do this. You're the one to go first. Church, this is the first little sign, this first little indication here that, that not all is right. Because God's word was very clear. Judah, you are to go up. Judah immediately think, yeah, okay, I'll go up, but let me invite Simeon to come with me. Now, in spite of that, which I would call partial obedience, God remarkably gives them victory after victory over their enemy. As you continue reading verses 10 through 18, 
Judah is going up. It's kicking rears. It's taking names. It even fulfills its promise to Simeon and helps Simeon conquer the land that was given, given to them. But then all of a sudden, look at verse 19, something happens. In verse 19, it says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. For those of you who aren't familiar with military history, chariots were kind of akin to tanks in those days. They, some have said like one chariot was equal to about 100 soldiers because while the chariots could pretty much only go in straight lines, that was how they fought their battles. You would line up your army and you would just advance as basically a wall and the chariot with horses could just come through and just ram through your lines, which would allow your soldiers to go through their lines and attack. So they come against a group of individuals who have these chariots and they're faced with a challenge. Now, when God told Israel to take the land of Canaan and to cast out the inhabitants, he never told them that it was going to be easy. He never told them that. He just told them that that is what they were to do and he would be with them and he would give them victory. Yet they meet some resistance here and what do they do? Church, look at verse 19. Did the tribe of Judah cast out the inhabitants of the land in obedience to what God had said? What's the answer? No. They left inhabitants there. They were met with a challenge. They found resistance, and they said, we can't defeat them. The question is, wait a sec, you can't or you won't? Because God had promised them what? I will. I will help you. I will be with you. Yet they stopped short, and they let these people remain. And guess what? This doesn't become an anomaly. From this verse onward, as you read the rest of chapter 1, you discover something. Every single tribe follows in the footsteps of their big brother Judah. Every single tribe fights, overcomes, but leaves certain inhabitants in. Look at this, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Achio. Nephtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Throughout the rest of the chapter, over and over again, they follow in the footsteps of Judah. Tribe after tribe does not do what God called them to do. Yet what did Joshua 24 what did the Israelites say that they would do? Do you remember what they promised the Lord? We will do everything God has called us to do. We will serve him. Instead, though, when you come to Judges chapter 1, when you look at what Israel did, what Israel actually did, Judges chapter 1 tells us they disobeyed the Lord. They disobeyed the Lord. There's no other way to... Well, to, to say it. And they did it in such a way that in the beginning, their disobedience was at first subtle. In verse 3, their disobedience was so subtle. See, they went beyond what God had told them to do when they invited Simeon to go with them. Church, partial obedience is actually what? Disobedience. 
So when they invited Simeon to go with them, it was so subtle. It's like, what's the harm in inviting Simeon to come with us? The harm is this. That's not what God asked them to do. God said, you go up. And then the disobedience gets a little bit more blatant when in verse 19, they met those Canaanites who had the chariots. In this situation, their disobedience was still a little more subtle because they felt like they had a justification for their disobedience. They're, they're difficult. It's hard. I mean, they got chariots. You know, we're really going to have to battle these guys. It was easier with everybody that didn't have chariots, and so they, well, we'll just leave them here. We'll deal with them another day. Church, that was still what? Disobedience. God had said conquer them. I didn't say it would be easy. I called you to drive them out. And then there was a verse I skipped over unintentionally. Because in chapter 1, verse 28, their disobedience is absolutely blatant. Look at this. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. In that situation, they didn't try and justify their disobedience. They didn't try and kind of hide it. They literally said, you know what? Wait a second. Why, why are we going to drive these people out? They can be hired slaves for us. They can do our work for us. Why would we want to drive them out? Then we're going to have to do this work. This is the direct, direct contradiction to what God had called them to do. Chapter 1, church, is a record of Israel failing to obey what God commanded them to do. And guess what? God wasn't blind to it. Look at how chapter 2 starts. In verse 1, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and I shall make no covenant, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Did God clearly see and understand what Israel had done? Absolutely. He wasn't blind to it. He called it for what it is. He saw everything that he had done, and he called it what it was. He said, this is disobedience. I promised to be with you, to take care of you. I told you not to leave them there, not to make covenants with them, and yet that's what you did. The people told Joshua that they would do everything that God commanded them, and yet they did not do it. In verse 3, in verse 3, look at what God says. He says that there will be consequences for their disobedience, just as he said that there would be. So now I say, this is the Lord speaking, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall become snares to you. What we have God doing here is communicating very clearly something that gets repeated over and over again in the rest of the Bible. And that is that when we disobey, things do not go well. When we take God's plan and we say, you know what? I know you're the king of the universe. I know you know all things. I know that you're in all places. I got a better idea, though. It's like a two-year-old coming to an adult and telling us how we should handle a situation. It looks silly, but it's not just a silly thing that they did. Listen to me. 
It is a destructive thing. One of the first big takeaways from the book of Judges when you read chapters 1 and 2 is this. Obedience, church, can be a struggle. Obedience can be a struggle, but disobedience, it brings about destruction. Obedience can be a struggle. This is the first takeaway, but disobedience brings about destruction. God comes to Israel and it says, you know, you would not walk in my ways. You would not experience the promises and the blessings that, that I was going to give you for your obedience. I never told you it'd be easy to follow me. I never told you it wouldn't be a challenge. But what I did tell you is that if you deviated from my ways, if, if you did not follow me, that was the path that would lead to your harm and to your destruction. When you look at Judges, I think it's a picture, even today for us, of often the Christian life. At times, to walk in obedience to the God who loves us, who cares for us, who has made the way straight for us. In this world, it can sometimes be a struggle, and it can be difficult. And that's, that's what the Israelites experienced. But what they also came to see is that it is vastly more destructive, vastly more painful when you give in and you disobey. But you and I already know this to be true. I think about our teenagers that are here and, and the struggles that they face in this day and age to walk in obedience to the Lord. To, to know that to walk in obedience to God at times. I think of the teenager who's, who's out with friends and, and they're enjoying their time and then the friends start to make decisions. And maybe it's around something like alcohol and they start drinking and the friend's like, you know what, I, I know that I shouldn't drink because I know where this is going to lead. And the friend's like, oh, come on, just, just do it. And if, and if you don't give in to that temptation, if you don't go along with your friends, in that moment you're going to be potentially ostracized, right? And, and they're going to be like, ah, you, you know, it's not just that you're, that you're not cool. They're going to push you to the side. And you're like, I don't want to necessarily lose those friendships. And then they've been drinking all night and you've chosen not to drink. They're like, hey, let's get in the car. Let's go over here. And you know that they're drunk. And in that moment, you're like, I just can't get in that car. I can't go with you. Listen, in that moment, obedience to the Lord, not giving in to those temptations, like that can be a struggle. You might lose friendships, but, but what can happen in that car? And I've seen this story play out. That car goes off and you go with them and you weren't drinking and you didn't do those things. But then that car gets in an accident and either you're maimed or your friends die and then you have to live with that the rest of your life. I mean, there's these, all these examples we see in life where obedience can be difficult and a struggle and can even be painful. But when you disobey, when you give in, the consequences are destructive. The businessman or the businesswoman who engages in the casual conversation with the person of the opposite sex in their, in their workplace. And they begin to cultivate that, that friendship. And that person might even know that you're a Christian. And, and then they, they send you a text at work. And you laugh at that text. And then you send a re re response. And then they start engaging you more and more. And they're starting to show you affections. And, and you begin to realize this might be crossing the line. And, and so you, instead of cutting that relationship off and realizing, you know what? Like, hey, we got to keep this professional. we got to be this in business. You keep going along, keep going along until one one day, you find yourself in the hotel, in a place, in a room where you never thought you would be. Why? Because you didn't want to follow and obey to the point where, you know what, I might lose that business relationship. I might lose that, that friendship. Listen, obedience can be a struggle. But I'm telling you, that affair, that drunken driving situation, it is far more destructive, far more devastating than what your obedience to the Lord might require of you. We're no different than them. When I read this passage, I look and I see, you know what? 
That was a struggle to go up against nations with chariots. It would be a struggle for Judah to go up alone and to not have one of their brother tribes with them. But God didn't ask them to figure out a better way to do it. He just simply said, obey me and I will be with you. The call of judges is to say, examine ourselves. Recognize obedience can be a struggle, but disobedience, it brings about destruction. One of the clearest pictures of obedience being a struggle and yet disobedience leading to absolute destruction would be if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if he had not obeyed the Father perfectly, if he had not lived the life that we should have lived, if he had given in to the temptations that were before him in this world, do you think it was a struggle for him to walk in obedience to the Father? The scripture says he was tempted and tried in, in every way like we were and yet was without sin. If Christ had given in, the destruction would have been beyond anything we could have imagined because there would have been no hope for eternity, no hope for salvation for us. And yet Jesus Christ faced the struggles, followed the Father. Whereas Israel said, I promise to do this, and they failed, Jesus said, I promise to do this, and he did it. And praise the Lord he did because you and I today, through the obedience of Christ, now have access to the Father. What a beautiful thing, amen? But then we continue on in the story because while the chapter 1 tells us not just simply what Israel did, chapter 2 comes and it tells us why, why they did it. Where did the disobedience come from? I, I don't think that Israel woke up one day as a nation and said, you know what, today sounds like a good day to live in rebellion against God. What do you guys think? Oh, I'm, I'm with you. Let's do it. Let's rebel. That's not what happened. In fact, Chapter 2 spells out for us what was happening in their heart, and it does it in a really interesting way. Judges, chapters 1 and 2, have often been a little bit confusing for people until you understand this. Chapter 2 starts the story all over again. It rewinds. Whereas chapter 1 tells the story of what Israel did, chapter 2 tells the story of what Israel did, but it shows the heart behind it. Because it starts in verse 6 by telling us that Joshua had just died. And so Judges chapter 2 comes in it, and it tells the story of Judges 1 over again, but from a different perspective. In verses 6 through 9, we're told that Joshua died, and then the people went up into the land. But verse 10 tells us what was going on in their hearts and minds after Joshua died and what led to their disobedience. Look at verse 10. And all that generation the generation who had experienced the miracles of God, who had served with Joshua, also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. It is right here in these verses that we are told why Israel disobeyed. 
How did they get to this point of promising to Joshua that they would walk in faithfulness to the Lord to now rejecting him, disobeying so blatantly by leaving the people in the land, by not walking obedience to him, to even going so far as to serve other gods? Well, as I said, it didn't happen overnight. They didn't wake up and think, you know what? Today's the day we are going to rebel. Instead, verse 10 tells us the reason. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The generation that walked in this disobedience that we saw in chapter 1 was this generation that came after Joshua, a generation that had not seen or experienced the things that God had previously done for Israel. But the reason why they disobeyed that this verse tells us is very clear. They failed to dwell upon who God was and what he had done. At the root, at the heart of Israel's disobedience was that as a generation, as a people, they had failed to dwell upon who their God was and what he had done for them. You see, it says in verse 10 that they did not know the Lord or the works that he had done. Now, I want this to be abundantly clear. This doesn't mean that, that this generation had never heard about the Red Sea crossing, that they had never heard about the crossing through the Jordan, that they didn't know about the manna in the wilderness. They didn't know about the deliverance out of Egypt. No, that's not what it means when it says that they didn't know what the Lord had done. See, the Hebrew word there for know is the Hebrew word yada. It's the word that is used in other passages to refer to a, to a man knowing his wife and his wife conceiving, okay? So if you're going to know your wife and she's going to conceive, that's more than just mental knowledge that we're talking about. Are you tracking with me? There's this intimate, experiential relationship with the person. And so what the author of Judges is telling us is that this generation that arose, this was a generation that sadly had not dwelt upon had not only not experienced the miracles that God had done, but it was a generation that had not received or had simply rejected what was being passed on to them about their God. They had failed to embrace him and to see him as a God who is worthy to be worshipped, who should have centered their entire lives. This was a generation that truly did not have an intimate relationship with him. And it boiled down to the fact that they did not truly know him for who he was and what he had done. This is a danger within every single generation. The saving acts of God were no longer precious or central to them. Yeah, my parents had experienced those things, but God, what have you done for me recently? What's so crazy about that was this. Had God not done for their parents what he had done, where would that generation still be? They would have been in Egypt. They would have been in slavery, or they would have been dead. So let me ask you a question. Had the experiences of their parents actually mattered to them as well? Absolutely they had mattered. Yet there was a disconnect in their minds. That's why I say they did not dwell upon who their God was or what he had done. Because if God had not done for their parents what he had done, they themselves would still be enslaved. Even within the church today, this message still rings true. You and I who are here, who have been saved by the grace of God, 
have done so because the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, not that we've been redeemed and rescued out of Egypt and out of slavery to a pharaoh, but out of slavery to sin and the punishment of hell, somebody came to you with that message. And the reality of that truth The death of Christ upon the cross some 2,000 years ago, that experience has echoed down through the ages. And if someone didn't pass it on to you, you and I would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. And so just because I might not have had a testimony where I was delivered as, as greatly out of a life of sin and debauchery as a previous generation does not mean that the impacts and the experience and the reality that God still needed to come and to save me and without him, I would be dead in my trespasses and sin. It is just as true for me as it is true for any other person. But the nation of Israel, the next generation, they looked at their lives and they said, that was for them Our experience is different. They failed to dwell upon who God was and what he had done for them. And because of this, verse 13 says, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Baals, that's a Canaanite word that just simply means lords, gods. And so what had they done? What led to their disobedience? It wasn't just that they failed to dwell upon who God was and what he had done. It was also that they had embraced false gods. God, what have you done for me lately turned into, well, these gods over here. These are the gods who save. These are the gods who provide security. These are the gods who provide safety. They'd taken their eyes and their affection off the one true God, and they had set it on the gods of the nations around them, inside every single one of our hearts, today and back then, is a desire to know that we have security, that we have safety, that we have meaning. We look inside of ourselves and we know that we're not enough. And unless our eyes and our attention go to the God who is enough, we will turn to the lords of this world, the gods of this world, and we will say, that's what I need. They take a lot of different forms, the gods of our age. They take the forms of relationships, of money, of power, of status, of influence, we chase after these gods and we, and we say, this is what ultimately I need for security, for meaning, to let me know that I, I'm something. When God comes and says, you need only me to tell you that you are mine and that I am enough. None of the gods back then or today are any gods at all. They're false gods. And what happened to the Israelites is because they did not understand who God was and what he had done for them, they failed to embrace that. They turned and they looked to the things around them. And this is where I get the second takeaway for us today, and that is this. Daily dwelling upon who God is and what he has done is an absolute necessity for us. What led to the Israelites' disobedience? It was a failure to do this to really understand the God who had saved them, to really understand the type of God that he was, the grace and mercy that he had shown them, the power that was in him and him alone. You know, I could have just as easily said daily dwelling upon the gospel (laughs) because, see, Israel had good news back then. Their good news was that, that they were in slavery to Pharaoh, yet God rescued and redeemed them. Today, 
our message, our hope, is that our God has rescued and saved us from slavery to sin. And praise God. And not only that, he comes to them and he says, I will be with you as you go into the promised land and as you take it over. Today, our news is that God says, I have, through my son, given you my spirit so that as you go into the world today, you have the power necessary to combat temptation, to live in obedience, to fear nothing that might come because Jesus Christ says, take heart, I have overcome what? The world. Is that true or is it not? We need, as the people of God, to not fall into disobedience, to, to not succumb to the temptations and trials, is to bring our minds back daily to the gospel. You know why we, we emphasize so intently that to be and make disciples as a church, one of our core values is that we gather, we gather for corporate worship. It's the first thing that we say because we need not just this weekly meeting to hear of the gospel and to hear the word of the Lord to us, but we need that to then go with us into the rest of the week because we are prone to forget, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is what happened to Israel. And if it happened to them, everything that was written in former days was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Here's the hope today, church. We do not have to fail as Israel failed. It is not an inevitable thing for you and for me if we continue to set our hope upon the Lord. But if we do fail... There's one final message in this passage. I'm just going to look at it very fast because we're going to pick it up next week. You see, what is the Lord's response to Israel's failure? What's the Lord's response to Israel's failure? Well, we, well, we find it in verses 14 and following. In verse 14, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. That feels redundant, but it's accurate. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. The Lord's response to Israel was a twofold response. How did he respond to their disobedience? In two ways. Judgment and grace. He could not let their sin go unpunished. He had told them, you disobey me in the land, these will be the consequences. He had said it first through Moses, then through Joshua, and so when they disobeyed, God couldn't come and say, you know what, <clears throat> I can't be faithful to my word. I'm just going to let this thing slide. No, he had to deal with sin as he has to deal with our sin. There can be consequences for our sin. The judgment of God can come. But look at the same point, and that's what the rest of the book of Judges shows us. There's this cycle. Israel rebels, yet God comes in and he provides his judges to relieve their suffering. And so there's both judgment and there's grace. Judgment and grace. How does God respond to our sins? Through judgment and grace. Do you know that there's not one sin in your life that will go unpunished? 
There's not one sin in our lives, even as Christians, that won't go unpunished. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. You see, when we fail, even now as followers of Jesus Christ, to walk in obedience to the Lord, there is punishment and there is judgment. But it is a punishment and a judgment that you won't experience. I'm not talking about consequences. I'm talking about judgment and punishment. Because, see, every single one of our sins has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. All of our trespasses, the record of our wrongs, Colossians says, was placed upon Jesus, and it was by his blood that grace came down and the judgment you and I receive for our sins, we will not experience because God has sent someone far better than a judge to rescue and redeem us. He has sent the King, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes in and responds to our sin with grace upon grace, freeing us and letting us today live in the forgiveness of our Father. And the mirror of how God deals with his people in both judgment and grace is shown in his response even here. Praise the Lord that he does not change. That the God of the Old Testament is not some angry God who throws down firebolts at his people. He's the same God then as he is now. He's the God who will judge because it is consistent with his character, but he also shows his grace and his mercy in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so today, as we look at this, we must realize this, the seriousness of walking in obedience to the Lord, recognizing that it's only possible as we find our motivation and our help by dwelling upon who he is and what he has done. But I close with this on Father's Day. There was one thing, there was one thing that the people of God were continually called to do, that not just individually are we to dwell upon who God is and what he has done for us, but we are to tell the next generation. It took one generation, one generation to begin to walk in complete disobedience, to turn from the one true God to false gods. And for you and for me, we need to tell the next generation. Through our deeds, through our actions, do your children know, do your grandchildren know, not just by your words, but by your very actions, that you are not without a king? But do they know that because of who your God is and what he has done, you live with Christ as your king? May the Lord help us to listen and to hear these instructions, to gain not just instruction, but hope as we learn from the life of God's people in the book of Judges. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a beautiful thing that we can right now call you our Father. On this Father's Day, you are a dad who does not stand far off from us. You are not a dad who is angry with us, but you are a dad who sees us as perfect and holy and righteous, not in our own works, but because we come to you through Jesus Christ, the one who took the judgment that we deserved upon himself. And now what we experience is your great grace. And so, Lord, help us to dwell upon this. Lord, help us to look to your word. Let us not be flippant. May we not be lazy. May we not look to the gods of this world and think that's where our hope is found. But may our hope only be found 
in Christ and Christ alone, in whose name we pray, amen.